Welcome to Talking Poverty, the podcast that takes a critical look at poverty-related issues in British Columbia. I'm Brian Clifford. On this episode, we're talking with Paul Taylor, the executive director of the Gordon Neighborhood House and co-chair of the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition. Hi, Paul. Hi, Brian. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what Gordon Neighborhood House is? Gordon Neighborhood House is a neighborhood house in the West End, been around since 1942. So this year we celebrate our 75th anniversary. So we're one of the oldest neighborhood houses in Vancouver and beyond. Um, Neighborhood houses, I think, are so magical. They're really a space for people to come together, um, articulate a vision around some of the things that they would like to see in their community and participate in building those things that they'd like to see. That's great. And so today's topic is food security. And I'm just wondering how food security ties into the work that you do at Gordon Neighborhood House. Yeah. So one of the things I didn't mention is that neighborhood houses are place-based. So unlike community centers, we really focus on the geographic communities in which we operate. So when you look at the 2011 census data, we find that almost one in every three West End residents, so 32.8% of folks who live in the West End, live in a household with a low income. We also know that 48% of the population of the West End are between the ages of 20 and 39. So it presents a really interesting challenge for us. We've got people who are materially poor and quite a lot of young adults who historically haven't engaged with charitable sources uh, of uh, emergency food. So at the Neighborhood House, we, our theory of change is really rooted in the food security continuum. And that, what that looks like is, yes, there are emergency and charitable resources that people need to access. They, those, those should be accessed in spaces that uphold dignity, and we should be thinking about the quality of food that we make available for folks. Two, we need opportunities for knowledge exchange and you know, learning how to make different types of food. It's not uncommon for people who are materially poor to have to buy produce from the what I call the bump and dent section, where the produce doesn't have a long life span. So I think opportunities to learn how to process various foods, I think, is key. But we often say at the, at the neighborhood house that giving someone a can of beans or teaching someone to make kale chips will not end hunger. Uh, the work that's the most important and has the most impact is around challenging our government to use the levers available to them to address a wicked problem like uh, poverty and food insecurity. In your own words, what does food security mean? Simply put, being able to get the food that you need. <laughs> Um, that allows you to grow and be strong and do the things that you need to do in your day. The issue is less about food and more about income. It's that people don't have the money that they need to purchase the food that they need, ultimately. We know that according to the 2016 hunger count by Food Banks Canada, about 103,000 people in BC accessed a food bank in March of last year. And this represents about a 3% increase from last year, or the year before in 2015, and about a 33% increase from 2008 when the global recession hit. So I just want to know, why does food bank usage keep on going up? We're not doing anything to address the root causes, uh, the, co- the things that cause people to access food banks. So, so yeah, definitely getting to the, the core of poverty. You know, when you think about Canada, we're one of the only G8 countries without a housing strategy. 
British Columbia is one of the only provinces without a poverty reduction strategy. So there's no kind of comprehensive approach to say, let's deal with poverty. Let's challenge the fact that some of our neighbors are don't have enough food to eat. You know, right now what we hear is ad hoc announcements that mean very little um, in terms of meaningfully addressing poverty. And you see a lot of people that don't have access to healthy, nutritious food that's suitable for their diets. Absolutely. We're seeing the cost of uh, particularly produce increase significantly. You know, food banks are, are our largest emergency response to food insecurity. But those are spaces that you need to be able to physically get to. When you're a parent of three and your food bank you have to travel to on public transit and you don't have childcare for your kids, it means paying the transportation costs to get yourself and three children to a food bank and back. We're also seeing a number of folks that are working, uh, some of which are working full-time. We're seeing more of those folks in food bank lineups but when I think about the number of, of folks that are working full-time that are in food bank lineups, they're only able to be there likely because they're working the evening shift uh, or overnight, which means that they're not sleeping during the day. So also I think about the folks that are working full-time 9 to 5 at minimum wage who can't access a food bank. And so does food insecurity disproportionately affect certain people or groups? Certainly. And who are those? Uh, indigenous folks, uh, people of color, people uh, with disabilities. Uh, here's an example, actually. I've had an opportunity to work with uh, some folks, some Chinese elders in the downtown east side. We had the support of an interpreter as part of this conversation. And I'll never forget, actually, um, this woman we were talking to who talked about being hungry and people telling her to go to the food bank. So she goes to the food bank and she gets um, a few things, one of which is this box, a rectangular box. And she opens it up, and there are noodles in it. So she thinks, oh, okay, I think I know what to do here. Um, nothing else to go with the noodles, really, except for this packet of a funny orange uh, powder. So for me, it reinforced how Eurocentric uh, the food bank model is, you know, types of food that gets donated. We never say to ourselves, hmm, what does the diversity of folks in our city look like? What types of food might they want access to? So, yeah, I would say folks that are forced to rely on food banks, that for them the food that's available is not um, culturally appropriate or, or food that they've had a significant experience with, these folks remain hungry and then eventually stop going to food banks because they just, they're not helpful for them. What are some roles social policy can play in helping to alleviate food insecurity? What we need at least is our government to commit to doing something. So we know that one of the second highest costs for most families in BC is childcare, and we're not investing our energies in th those policies like looking at a $10 a day childcare uh, plan, looking at affordable housing strategies, and, and really developing the amount of affordable housing that we need to meet the demand looking at things like minimum wage and kind of thinking more thoughtfully around introducing um, a $15 minimum wage or living wages, you know, which is like uh, unbelievable that we live in a major city and we have a minimum wage that's set substantially, significantly below um, the living wage in this city. So we're legislating um, poverty. And what about other policies like raising uh, welfare rates or uh, disability rates? Absolutely, they have to be increased significantly. And I think when you take a look at the amount of money, for example, that people receive on social assistance, 
So a single individual, the maximum that a single individual in, in British Columbia can receive on social assistance is $610, which is impossible. You take um, 375 of those dollars are supposed to be for shelter. The average cost of a one-bedroom in Vancouver is um, uh, close to $1,000. But let's pretend you can find a safe place to, to live and rest your head at $375. That leaves $7.58 a day for someone to access all of the other things that they need, um, the trans- transportation costs, food, toiletries, a cell phone to respond to, you know, calls for work and this sort of thing. It's we're we're not only institutionalizing poverty and food insecurity, we're actually legislating it. So we've been talking about some of the larger structural issues related to food insecurity. And one common question that I get is, how come we're not encouraging big supermarkets and companies to give their leftover food to people who are hungry? One common example is some legislation that was passed uh, last year in France that bans supermarkets from throwing away or destroying unsold food, forcing them instead to donate it to charities or food banks. So, again, using charities as a scapegoat to solve significant societal challenges is not effective. So charities are not equipped to take one-off donations. You know, if someone called us up and said we have... 36 cases of Miracle Whip, um, we would not know what to do with it. So what we've started to do actually at, at my work at Gordon Neighborhood House and talking to more community organizations about this approach is we actually do not take uh, one-off food donations. And also, one of the things that happens is this food, um, people will say, well, it's past its best before date. Well, we all need nutrients. And what I've understood best before date, dates to mean is that that's when that food is at its optimal. You know, it's at its best in terms of its, its nutritional value. So to give food to people that it has little to no nutritional value just fills their tummies, I think, is one thing. Nonprofits, like I say, don't have the capacity to, to take this on. Two, I think... You know, this also reminds me of how capitalism has really co-opted much of our process around decision-making. It is much more expensive for uh, large corporations to pay to dispose of their goods than it is for them to call, let's say, a food bank and say, please take these 3,600 cases of Miracle Whip um, off our hands. And it's, you know, you'll see these trucks driving around that say, um, at least in the city that I'm from, in Toronto, I, 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 it's not uncommon to see a food bank truck driving down the street with um, a slogan say, that says, ending hunger in our communities, kind of reinforcing this idea that food banks are an adequate response to poverty and hunger in our communities. And then to see a little logo stamped on the back that says, you know, generously donated by uh, Campbell's or Kellogg or what have you. You know, they're making these one-time investments in a much cheaper mechanism for disposal of their product. So I I think we need to be thinking a little bit more upstream, and we need to uh, force corporations to be more thoughtful around how they're going to dispose of their food. And also, I think as a society, we need to challenge some of our expectations. So if people are thinking about making sure nobody goes hungry year-round, what can they do? What should they do? 
I would say first and foremost, this province needs a poverty reduction strategy. So I would say the first and foremost thing, if we have an election coming up in May, what they need to do is contact their MLA, contact the candidates in their local riding and say, will you commit to introducing a comprehensive poverty reduction strategy if you you or your party is elected? I think, you know, all those folks that go out and go through their cupboards and donate uh, things to the food bank, you know, that is only addressing an emergency need. So, yeah, contacting the candidates in your in your community and saying, will you, yes or no, will you and your party commit to legislation, uh, comprehensive legislation around a poverty reduction strategy and holding them to that? Thanks so much for being here, Paul. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, real pleasure. You've been listening to Talking Poverty. I'm Brian Clifford, and today I interviewed Paul Taylor, the executive director of Gordon Neighborhood House. To learn more about Gordon Neighborhood House, you can visit their website at gordonhouse.org. The Talking Poverty podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and TuneIn. Thanks for listening.